Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 124 and the ninth installment of the All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts series. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. Today's episode of Talking Tudors is sponsored by the Queen Anne Boleyn Paper Doll by Rebecca Monet. In addition to being an elaborate paper doll book, it also serves as an illustrated biography with extensive historical research. Endorsed by Professor Susanna Lipscomb, Dr. Owen Emerson of Hever Castle, who also wrote the foreword for the book, and myself, it promises hours of enjoyment, colouring and learning, or simply reading and exploring. Each copy comes with a QR code connected to a folder of growing content, including customizable faces from famous portraits and portrayals of Anne Boleyn, and how-to videos on topics ranging from creating with your images to colouring Tudor textiles. To buy your own copy, you can visit Anne Boleyn Paper Doll or OneWord.com store and begin exploring this unique response to an extraordinary woman who, in the words of Dr. Emerson, beguiles us still. I'd also like to acknowledge and thank the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does help people find us. While the podcast and all the content being shared over July and August is absolutely free, please consider supporting the event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. August's prize is an absolutely stunning portrait miniature of Catherine of Aragon, painted by Roland Hoy, and a Tudor Queen's motto bracelet. A huge thank you to Roland and Shira for sponsoring this incredible prize. Patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. Next month, I'll be chatting to Dr. Owen Emerson and Claire Ridgway about their new book, The Berlins of Heaver Castle. Please get in touch with me to register your interest for this event. 
Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about the Tudor Queen's consort is a woman who needs no introduction, Professor Susanna Lipscomb. Professor Lipscomb is an historian, author, broadcaster, and an award-winning professor of history. She's also the host of the Not Just the Tudors podcast. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Susanna. How are you? I'm well, Nat. It's very good to see you. It's always nice to chat with you. Um, I've just moved house, so I'm talking to you out of the midst of boxes and sort of life in disarray. But um, this, I promised myself, is the last time I'm going to move. So, <laughs> until you know, they carry you, me out of here. You've put a few books on the shelf, so you've got your priorities right. I love that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I had to have a few that I didn't let them pack just so that I felt this kind of security blanket. Otherwise, there's a sort of wall of, of books, which was like a castle wall, you know, three boxes deep and maybe like six boxes high in just in that room there with, wait, waiting to go on the shelves. But. Exactly. Oh, wonderful. Now, let's just start by you just maybe introducing yourself and telling our listeners a little bit about you and your background. Right. OK, so I'm Susanna Lipscomb. I'm... Um, I'm now Professor Emerita of History at the University of Roehampton and my background. So I did my degrees in history, first degree in uh, master's and then doctorate, DPhil at Oxford. And 
I worked on 16th century history, but particularly 16th century France, and I've later written a book about that. Uh, and then as I was coming towards the end of that, I got a post as a research curator at Hampton Court Palace. So I was there for three and a half years working on a new exhibition to mark the 500th anniversary of Henry VIII's succession. And from there, I went back into academia. So I was at the University of East Anglia. I was at New College of the Humanities in London, and then at the University of Roehampton. And alongside that, I've also had a kind of career in public engagement. So I've written books intended for public audience, history books, uh, and I've made um, television programs and I've made podcasts. I have a podcast now called Not Just the Tudors with History Hit. And I do all sorts of public facing things like leave people around Hampton Court or give talks or that sort of thing. So and I write a column for history today. So I, so I, I kind of have done a mixture of academic history and public facing history. Fantastic. And I'm so excited about your new series, actually. I'm, I, I need to find a way to watch it here in Australia. I have to um, pull some strings or something, I think. Well, hopefully it will come to Australia. People always ask me, when's it coming to Australia? When's it coming to Canada? And the truth of the matter is that the presenter is often the last person to know. But generally speaking, money is made not for me, but for other people further up the, the chain by selling these programs to other countries. So they will come They will come your way at some point, and I'll let you know as soon as I do. It's called Walking Tudor England, and um, it. it's it's been great actually doing it. Really, really fun. Awesome. All right. We'll wait patiently then. Now, Susie, you're currently working on a book, Six Queens, The Wives of Henry VIII. So tell us about this exciting project and what inspired you to turn your attention to all the queens? Well, actually, the title is, is actually going to be The Six, oh. Henry VIII's Queens. And it's not a book in about Henry VIII's wives. It's a book about six women who were for part of each of their lives married to Henry VIII. And I don't mean that as a sort of facetious distinction. It means that I'm concerned with the lives of these women in four. So cradle to grave, I'm interested in their formative years as much as I'm interested in the kind of the high points of their reigns. But it also means I'm concerned with these women, as far as possible, as far as the evidence allows, from their own perspective. And so, and the reason for wanting to do it, of course, there are existing collective biographies, but Actually, most of them are um, about, uh, even the most recent is about 20 years old. And not all of them bear great scrutiny at this distance of time. And sometimes they, I feel that they have harmfully misrepresented some of the women. They've used quite hackneyed, misogynistic tropes. I mean, women basically are often written off as a sort of Madonna or a whore or a bore. And there's been a lot of new research in individual biographies, numerous academic journal articles over the last 20 years that hasn't been incorporated into any sort of single volume. So I'm, I think it, I'm looking to create something that that relies primarily on original manuscript sources, which most of them don't, that incorporates the latest research and that can be read today without cringing. In other words, it gives a sort of accurate, gender-sensitive, feminist and readable history of, of these six women. No, I'm so glad to hear that. And I sort of, even before you said that, I, I felt that that's the angle that you were going to take. And I'm so happy to actually hear it because I totally agree with you. Some of the descriptions are atrocious, to be honest, <laughs> just to put it simply. So I'm I'm glad that you're looking at that from that angle. Now, let's talk about um, some of these women. So several of them were, in fact, related. Can you tell us about some of those connections? Well, people generally know that Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard were cousins and they were cousins through well through Catherine's father and Anne's mother so Thomas Howard the second Duke of Norfolk and his wife Elizabeth Tilney had many children I think nine and among them was 
Thomas Howard had become a third Duke of Norfolk, quite a major character in Henry VIII's court. Lord Edmund Howard and Lady Elizabeth. And Lady Elizabeth Howard was Anne Boleyn's mother and Lord Edmund Howard was father to Catherine Howard. So obviously they're cousins. But I, I think, I'm sure I've read the, a post that you've put up, Nat, uh, that actually there's another connection as well, that both of Anne and Catherine were also related to Jane Seymour. <laughs> so uh, Elizabeth Tilney, um, um, for those who don't know, so Elizabeth Tilney, again, wife to keep up with all the Thomases and the Elizabeth I'm Thomas not. Howard, second Duke of Norfolk. <laughs> so that the, basically Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard's grandmother was half-sister to Jane, Sis- Jane Seymour's grandmother, who was Anne Say, because Elizabeth Tilney's mother, another Elizabeth, helpfully, Elizabeth Cheney, had first been married to Frederick Tilney and then was married to John Say. So, in other words, Anne, Jane and Catherine shared a great-grandmother. And so Anne and Catherine were second cousins to Jane Seymour. That's right, isn't it? I've got... <laughs> I'm pretty sure I am impressed that you did that all with not even a little glimpse at a paper or a note, Susie. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and then there's actually one other connection I think we should think of, it, which is Catherine Parr. So this is Catherine Parr's godmother had been Catherine of Aragon. And although that's not... Um, it, as we would see it, a familial connection. So Maud um, Green, Catherine Parr's mother, was in service to Catherine of Aragon, which is why Catherine Parr was named Catherine, almost certainly named after her godmother, Catherine of Aragon. Um, and I like the fact that Henry's last wife was named after his first wife. That spiritual tie in Tudor England would have been considered as much a relation as as a sort of cousinly relation. So actually, we've got quite a few of them related to each other in different ways. Absolutely. And I don't know if that last one is as well known. So thank you for sharing that one with us. Now, let's talk about some of the roles that that they performed at court. Can you tell us about some of the main ones? Yes. Well, I do. I I will look at a note for this because I wanted to tell you about what Christine de Pizan said about the queenly role, which is in her The Treasure of the City of Ladies. So she says that the queenly role is to provide hospitality and welcome guests, even if they don't like them, to defer to the Lord, their Lord in public, but advise their husband in private, to distribute largesse and charity to their subjects in a in such a way as will encourage emulation. Um, she talks of chastity, of modesty and sobriety in behaviour and dress, and the importance of protecting reputation and cultivating the good opinions of others. And so that's written in 1405. And I think it's quite a good guide. I think we can probably amend it a little bit when we're thinking about the Tudor Queen's Consort, because... For example, they are certainly kind of present in the social world of the court. So they are present at court entertainments and they are an important factor in making connections between the elite. They act as a sort of hostess of the court. They they create courtly pastimes and they sort of host those. But they also enable people to relax in order to share news and gossip. So the kind of diplomatic exchange of information that's happening at a queen's court, and they are involved in patronage, which Pizan note, notes. They kind of they give out material gifts again, and it's again about building bridges with the nobility, those people who are going to be so crucial to supporting their husband's reign. But I challenge Pizan on the sobriety and modesty in dress. I think certainly a century later, actually, what we're looking for from a queen is magnificence. So, for example, when Niccolo Sagodino, who's one of the Venetian ambassadors, visits Catherine of Aragon, or he visits, the, he visits Henry's court, and he notes 
on one occasion, 1515, um, the, the queen was very richly attired. Let me read you the description. And she had, he had with her 25 damsels mounted on white porphyries with housings all of one fashion, most beautifully embroidered with gold. And all these damsels wore dresses slashed with gold alarm and very costly trim and were attended by a number of footmen in excellent order. And so there's something there about the fact that the queen and indeed her ladies are required to kind of put on a sumptuous display that their clothing, the luxury and magnificence of their clothing reinforces the queen's status and her authority. And this is not, so clothing is not trivial in the 16th century. It is very much used to create identity. Um, And in terms of two other roles, I think we should mention piety. So that the queen is supposed to sort of lead by example in terms of demonstrating her worship of God and her pious behavior and that she is a sacred anointed queen and that needs to be manifest in how she behaves. And then, of course, crucially, that she creates the dynasty, that she is bearing heirs. And so I'd say that in all these ways, and Peter Zan obviously mentioned that she's giving counsel to her husband privately, there is potential for a queen to have real power, you know, to authority, influence. And it's through their relationships, largely. It's in, in part through the sort of their public role as the partner to the king, but it's above all in their relationship with the king. And there's scope for them to really uphold the honour of the court in terms of things like their religious practice, their public comportment, their dancing even, that they can enhance the status of the court. Sorry, that was a very long answer. No, 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 that was a fantastic um, summary. I loved that. But I want to delve a little bit deeper into one of the points that you mentioned, one or two actually. So you talked about reputation. Of course, this was, you know, crucial at the time. And you talked about behaviour as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about exactly what was expected of the Queen in terms of behaviour and maybe touch on reputation as well, but also what happens if they fail to live up to this reputation? Well, so so much of what Pizan has said has given us the kind of key expectations that they are supposed to be generous in um, providing hospitality, patronage, distributing largesse, that sort of thing, and not publicly challenging their husbands, um, but also crucially, really crucially, honour or reputation for women rested very much on sexual conduct, on chastity. That's both before marriage, not not sleeping with anyone else, but also within marriage, confining themselves to their husband alone. So that is absolutely crucial. I do think that for queens, there's another expectation, which is their role in the conceit of courtly love. Um, Seguin in the Green Knight refers to it as love talking. So they need to be kind of witty um, mm. and deal in the sort of social graces of love poetry and sparkling repartee and be the kind of queen bee at the heart of this hive of courtly lovers. And so there's an inherent tension between those two roles of demonstrating outward chastity, something, for example, that Catherine of Aragon does very well, and being at the heart of this sort of world of repartee and wit and sort of slightly saucy, sexy conversation, which, of course, Anne Boleyn does so well. And it, But it's very hard to live up to both these things at once, which is one, which is what I think is crucial, crucial reason that Anne Boleyn comes a cropper, as it were, <laughs> that the very thing that has attracted Henry to her is the thing that spells her downfall. And if they fail to live up their expectations, well, the best case scenario is that they could be supplanted. So one could argue, I don't, 
I think there's more to it than this, obviously, but one could argue that Catherine of Aragon, whilst absolutely this is an ex- exceptional, incredible woman, in- learned, um, diligent, fascinating, but perhaps didn't deliver for Henry, would certainly didn't deliver for Henry in terms of creating dynasty and creating heirs. But maybe, maybe there's some extent to which the degree to which Anne could talk of would indulge in love talking was not matched in Catherine. It's certainly true of Anne of Cleves that her lack of schooling in codes of chivalry, in courtly love, in knowing how to play that game really ill-equipped her for the English court. It meant that her first encounter with Henry was a total botched job. And so it all rests on the fact that she failed to live up to expectations there. But that's the best case scenario, of course. The worst case scenario is is execution. Uh, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard both failed to demonstrate chastity, it was thought. And so chastity also comes down not so much just to what they, you know, what did they or didn't they? Um, In in both cases, I think they didn't. But I think what they did do is they, they, it looked as if they did. That's the crucial thing. So it's not just so much about what one did as what one was seen to do or one was thought to do. So failure to live up to expectations related to their role and their gender spelt the downfall for each each one of those queens I've mentioned. And I, I would say that I think this is a little unusual because I think that, and a lot of it comes down to the character of Henry VIII, because most kings at the time, if you think of someone like Henri II, Henry II of France, married to Catherine de' Medici, but he did not require of her everything that Henry required, Henry VIII required of his wives. Most kings at the time would take, would marry a foreign queen, but would find love in the arms of a homegrown mistress. And I think the problem with Henry VIII is that he's expecting each one of these women to be everything. I want to pick up on something you said about Anne of Cleves. You mentioned, obviously, that the level of her education in terms of what was expected at the English court obviously let her down. So I want to just, can we briefly touch on education and upbringing and and what impact this had on their success? You've obviously already touched on that with, with Anne of Cleves, but maybe let's just go into that a little bit more. Yeah, so let's talk about Anne first, although it's out of order. Anne of Cleves was literate, but not well-read, didn't have a range of languages, so she knew things like she knew how to sew and she knew how to cook. She probably knew how to tally household accounts. But German culture considered it to be, according to Nicholas Wooten, who went to the court, a rebuke and occasion of lightness. So it's sort of shamefully frivolous to teach a woman to be learned or to have knowledge of music. So that's where Anne of Cleves is not fitting French or English expectations of, of her education and role. And it's a great contrast with people like Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, and Catherine Parr, all of whom are really highly educated. So Catherine of Aragon was one of the most learned women in Europe. I mean, she had humanist tutors. She could speak Spanish, French, English. Um, she was skilled in needlework, riding, hunting, falconry, music, dancing, playing a number of instruments. Anne Boleyn, similarly conversant in at least English and French, great courtly skills. Um, and Catherine Parr was also highly educated, you know, she corresponded in Latin, she learned French, she learned applied arithmetic, I mean, all manner of things. Jane Seymour and Catherine and Howard, it's less clear that they were of this sort of educated order. And whilst I think that in both cases there were compensations, Jane Seymour had a son and Catherine yes. Howard was very, very young when Henry was 
quite old and she was obviously very beautiful. I do think that on the whole, it was an expectation of a queen that she would be learned and that she would lead the court in that regard and and that those queens who were not able to do that were being set up in some way to fail, um, that they that they couldn't perform their queenship, to use the language you did, as well as they would have been able to had they been better educated. And and so I think that not being educated was, was a handicap. Now, you talked before about power, and, and you said that, of course, some of these women could wield real power through their relationship with the king. I want to touch on that again. And I want to ask you, Susie, do you think that this power that the the, the wives had, these women had, diminished as, as Henry's reign wore on? What's really interesting, I suppose, about queens in general is that the scope of their power depended so much on the personality of the king and on their relationship with the king. So it varies by queen. So I don't think it diminishes as time goes on because, for example, Catherine of Aragon and Catherine Parr are both made regents when Henry goes to war so in the in the 15-teens and the 1540s. So there was scope for women married to Henry VIII to have power. I think, however, Henry's character changes and so he becomes perhaps less open to suggestion. I mean, and it's interesting because some people would say that he becomes more open to suggestion by the end of his life. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think he becomes kind of entrenched and stubborn. So, for example, Anne Boleyn, of course, is very important in terms of instructing Henry in religious matters. But when Catherine Parr, if the story is true from Fox, if, when Catherine Parr wants to lead Henry into a religious discussion, you know, it almost spells her downfall. And maybe they've had religious discussions before and it's been fine. But the one instance that we have of it suggests that actually Henry was not to be led at that time. So I think queens did have potential to influence and to be powerful. But in the case of Henry VIII, I think it rather depended on where he was and what was going on with him, you know, and probably even on the day, you know, was his ulcer playing up? Did he feel unwell? <laughs> you know, so I think it's not so much that it in increases or diminishes over the reign. I think it probably ebbed and flowed. If we want to have a general, if you want to say a kind of the general point about it, is it going up or is it going down? Perhaps it's going down because he's becoming more stubborn, but I think it's much more complex than that really over time. When you were talking about how it was usual for, for kings at, at this time to marry, of course, foreign princesses and Henry, of course, just to marry for English subjects. Why, why do you think this, this is that he kind of went against the grain at this point? I think it's really unusual and I think it's because, and this is a weird thing to say about Henry VIII, but I think it's because he was a romantic. His problem was that he wanted to know his wives. I mean, he knew Catherine of Aragon before he married her because she'd been his brother's widow, of course. He'd walked her down the aisle to marry his brother. He knew Anne Boleyn at the court. He knew Jane Seymour. He knew Catherine Howard. He knew Catherine Parr. The only person he didn't know in advance was Anne of Cleves and that didn't work out well. So I think Henry's problem was that he wanted something that was contrary to the expectations of the time you know there's that famous line when he's looking for a wife in the late 1530s where he wants to meet some of the potential candidates from France and he suggests that they come to Calais oh well it is suggested they come to Calais yeah he suggests they come to Calais and so he can meet them so he can see them and the French ambassador Castillon says uh, um, you know would you like to mount them as well which was obviously a sort of <laughs> 
absolutely shocking suggestion because you know the idea is the, the, the illusion to put some context on the illusion is that they're kind of being paraded around like yeah. horses like you might choose a horse at a horse fair would you like to mount them as well but obviously you know modern modern ears can hear <laughs> the sexual innuendo there as well as Tudor ears and Henry is appalled by this you know kind of goes red in the face and is appalled by the, the temerity of this man in saying this thing but from the French ambassador's perspective, that is what Henry's asking to do. By, by asking to see them in advance, he is being extraordinarily rude. And it was normal at the time to send portraits if you wanted to, to marry someone. There's lots, lots of the pictures we have are, are courtship portraits. We can tell that quite often, they're, you know, how they're framed and what they're holding and that sort of thing. And it's almost certain that Anne of Cleves was sent a portrait of Henry just as Henry was sent a portrait of her, for example. But Henry's problem is that that wasn't enough. Like and he really worried about the Anne of Cleves situation. That's why he sent Holbein over there because he wanted he wanted to be absolutely certain of what he was getting. Because so much in his perspective rested on the relationship with his queen, and because he invested so much in that. And he, here's the big irony: Henry, the man who has six wives, would have had fewer wives, would have been less known as a notorious womanizer if he had had more mistresses. But instead, Henry wanted it all to be within wedlock. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? Now, Susanna, how do you think that the lives and the reigns of the women, the English women who became Henry's queens, differed from those of his two foreign brides? I think that a crucial part of the difference comes from the fact that First of all, the foreign brides come with status. I mean, particularly this is the case with Catherine of Aragon, but still so with Anne of Cleves. They already arrive bearing extraordinary royal dignity and honour. Catherine of Aragon comes from the Trastamera family, you know, one of the, the most important families in Europe. And so they're not being lifted up they, by becoming queen. They already arrive with their own dignity. Whereas the English queens, people know where they've come from. So they're less, they're having less instinctive honour being given to them. And also, crucially, they're part of an intricate network of families at court. So there's expectations being placed on them by those families to deliver for those families. So their loyalties pull them in multiple directions. That's true, I think, of all of them. Perhaps Catherine Parr, she has siblings, but she has no sort of older family to speak of who would might have tried to manipulate her so perhaps it's less true for Catherine Parr but I would say for Anne Boleyn for Jane Seymour and for Catherine Howard there's very much a sense in which they are required to do something for their family because of their position not just because that you know not just for Henry and I think that tears them in, in multiple tears them apart really. Is there any aspects of any of the reigns of these women that we've been discussing that you feel has been most often overlooked or undervalued there's probably a lot actually but are there any sort of main ones that pop into your head I mean the answer is a lot yes there's lots and lots I mean so Giles Tremlett wrote that rather wonderful biography of Catherine of Aragon and indeed Garrett Mattingly wrote a wonderful biography of Catherine of Aragon and both of those think about Catherine's Spanish formation but I would still say that for example in thinking of Catherine of Aragon there's not that much attention paid to her before she turns up on English shores. And there's lots of material in the Spanish chronicles and in the Spanish archives that deals with 
that period. And I think one has to understand a lot about her family and her background to comprehend who she is. It makes the situation that she's forced into when she comes to England so much more pathetic because of the contrast with where she's come from. So, and I think that's sort of true, I mean, again, true with Anne of Cleves. I think it's true thinking about what we know about Anne Boleyn's time in France. I think most attention has been paid to Catherine Howard's formation, perhaps. And some very good books about Catherine Parles. But yeah, anyway, so I would say that I think people's formation is important to who they become. And so I'd say that because the remit of books has often been to talk about them just when they are wives, that they haven't thought about them before that. And in some cases after. I mean, Anne of Cleves' life after Henry VIII is is interesting. I mean, it's it's harder to access because once you're not queen you don't feature centrally in the sources but I think there's some really interesting stories that could tell us about her character there some in in some sources that are important yeah I totally agree with you and I think one of the the best parts of when I was writing with Sarah Morris in the footsteps of the six wives of Henry VIII in terms of Catherine of Aragon I had the great pleasure of going to Spain and doing research I took my whole family caravan for a month and um And it was, and a lot of the locations that I wrote about are from her Spanish time. And it was illuminating and and wonderful to spend time in that period of her life. And as you say, you get to see the real contrast, like being in Spain and then suddenly she's in England in Ludlow where she's just come from the Alhambra, the beautiful, you know, warmth of that palace. And then suddenly in, in cold Ludlow with Arthur, you can really feel how difficult and challenging that time must have been for her. So I think it's very important to to yeah to focus on the the, the years before. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I know this is a difficult question, but do you think that any one of these women that we can pick one that has been the most misrepresented, if that kind of makes sense? I mean, they've all nearly all been misrepresented. Anne of Cleves, Catherine Park, Catherine Rarigan, Catherine Howard, Anne Boleyn. Maybe not Jane Seymour, but I would say pretty much that it's almost a, there's barely a woman amongst them who hasn't been misrepresented. Maybe even Jane Seymour. So it depends on the day you ask me. I mean, today I'm thinking maybe Anne of Cleves has been most misrepresented because of that horrible sort of moniker that got attached to her in the 17th century of calling her the Flanders mayor and the fact that Henry himself is immediately misrepresenting her and describing her as ugly, which is his own opinion and isn't what one shared, it appears, by anyone else. Well, apart from a couple of his lackeys who are saying what he told them to say um, or what will get them into his good books. So, but, you know, Catherine Parr has equally been misrepresented. I mean, yeah, sorry, I can just go through each <laughs> no, one of them and explain how they've been misrepresented. <laughs> that's not the question you asked. So I, I think the truth of the matter is that it has been easier to understand these women by putting them into into these sort of boxes and writing them off in various ways, diminishing them in various ways. And actually, the truth of the matter is that they're more interesting in their complexity and fullness than we've recognised. Now, I know you've been researching about the Tudors and, and these women for a long time, and now, obviously, you're immersed in it with your with your book. Have you found that any of your opinions about any of these women has changed during the course of your research and your writing? Well, I'm still in the midst of it. So in some ways, I'll have to let you know. Um, But yeah, generally speaking, I found that my time with each of them has made me more enamoured of each one of them. I think this is true of one's historical subjects on the whole. Like, If you spend time thinking about a person, thinking about what motivated them, 
what they cared about. In the end, actually, you start to care more about them. Uh, and I think that's, you know, there's a sort of the, 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 the biographer falling in love with his subject or her subject is a well-known phenomenon. And so one has to, to allow that to happen in some ways, whilst at the same time trying to maintain some perspective. And the way, the way I'm trying to do that is because I'm writing about six different women each of them is a sort of heroine, as it were, of their own chapter or own part of the book. So Catherine of Aragon is the heroine of hers. And Anne Boleyn is seen from her perspective at that point. But then in Anne Boleyn's chapter, Catherine of Aragon is seen from Anne's perspective. And I think that helps because if you're going to do a feminist reading, that in part means rehabilitating women and allowing them to sort of have their to be heard in all their fullness, but it also means recognising their frailties and their um, their failings. And we do that in large part by seeing them through the eyes of other people. So I'm trying, so I'm, so I'm trying to allow that tension to come out in the way this, that they're dealt with so that I can increase my sympathy and my empathy with them without it sort of marring the analysis in the end. Yeah, it, come, it can become very consuming, can't it? I'm, I'm, I'm finding it that it is totally consuming at the moment. Going to sleep, last thing I'm thinking about waking up, first thing I'm thinking about waking up in the middle of the night thinking about it as well. Do you have any tips, Susie, of what I can do to, to improve my sleep? Huh. I mean, that's all useful thinking, by the way. Like the stuff yeah. you do at night is your subconscious working on things. That's really good. Yeah, I mean, basically you have to switch off from this stuff a few hours before bed, yeah. really, and read some other things. I, I find it almost impossible to sleep unless I've read a novel or something like that before I go to sleep, where I've taken my mind to a completely different place. Because yeah. otherwise, yes, I will wake up in the night thinking about what that ambassador had to say about that or whatever. <laughs> you know, and... Um, Useful I'm glad, I'm not, glad I'm not alone in that then. I, <laughs> yeah. feel better. I feel better. Now, what do you think the experiences and lives of all these amazing women can teach us about the lives of aristocratic women in general at the Tudor court? A couple of things, I suppose. The role of an aristocratic wife is on a smaller scale, very similar to that of a Tudor queen. So they need to demonstrate status. They need to use their kinship networks. They need to distribute patronage. And all those things are expected of them in their position as the the hostess of their house. But I suppose also the courts of each of the queens allow us to look at the experiences and lives of those who served them. And we can see particularly the networks between them, we can learn something of their experiences at court. And we get quite a lot of information about them from things like letters and so on at the time. So there's sort of some general points that we can derive. And then there are detail, detail about relating to specific aristocratic women. And I suppose it can give us some sense of the challenges they faced, um, the material world they lived in the extent to which they could use power or not and and their sort of voice i mean you can, you know from some of these from some of these letters and communications we can get a sense of who these people were but it's it's very hard i mean there were real challenges in accessing women in the past and and that's true both of the queens and of aristocratic women you know you'd think it's hard when it, you're talking about ordinary women um, you know lower status women but actually it's even hard when you're thinking about some of these celebrated women because so much is said about them and not much comes from them and 
you just have to think about whether you would like to be remembered by what everyone said about you as opposed to what you had to say for yourself. And you can see the problem. <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> The last thing I'm going to ask you is for a Tudor Queen's takeaway. So I've been asking all my guests for a suggestion of something that our listeners can go off and watch or listen to after the show. So do you have a Tudor Queen's takeaway? Well, I have. Yeah, I have a few. So the Society of Antiquaries in London has got a couple of things coming up, which I think will be of interest to people. So there's going to be an online exhibition called Henry VIII, Defender of the Faith, which is launching on their website soon that John Cooper's been involved with. Professor Susan Doran's giving an online lecture via the Society of Antiquaries, which is free, but they'll accept donations, on queenship in early modern England on the 14th of September. My podcast today on not just the Tudors, if I'm allowed a plug, is um, <laughs> the story of Anne Boleyn. Funnily enough, you and I, I think, interviewed Professor Joanne Delaniva for our podcast at a similar time. It will be interesting to see the comparison, but I think there's so much in her recent and soon to be published translation of Lancelot de Carle's poem about Anne Boleyn's life and death that makes us rethink that crucial period of Anne's life, particularly the death, you see, because he focuses on that, as you know. And so those who've enjoyed your chat with her might want to go and listen to more on the subject that she's talking about it on Not Just the Tudors as well. Definitely. They're all great suggestions. And I was so excited by her research. So I'm, I'm going to I'm going to go and listen to that too. Susanna, it's been such a pleasure. It's always so wonderful to speak with you and so insightful. And I dare say I'm going to wake up at three o'clock in the morning thinking about something tonight as well. <laughs> I'm sorry that we've had this conversation just before you go to bed. <laughs> That's okay. So thank you so much for talking Tudors with us again. You're welcome. It's always a joy to be on your wonderful, wonderful podcast. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.